Well, good morning. I, uh, the, the message this morning is on selflessness or unselfishness, and I selfishly wanted a table up here to be able to set my manuscript on. So I don't know if you noticed, Josh, right, at, right when we were beginning, come running in with the table for me. So thank you, Josh, for that. Um, you know, we, we live in a very selfish culture. All you have to do is think about how we are constantly bombarded with messages of selfishness. We are bombarded, bombarded with those messages in commercials, in songs, in, in the movies, on television shows. Um, we, we see it everywhere. Uh, if you've been around children at all, I'm sure you have seen selfishness even in children. I go to a store where a child sees something that they want and their parent says no, and they throw a temper tantrum. That's selfishness. They want their own way. We see selfishness not only in children. We see it on the news and what's going on in our world. And I think the most disturbing place that we see it is in our own lives. And selfishness is not only a problem in our day because of the culture that we live in. Certainly, that is, uh, selfishness is rampant in our culture, but it's found in every culture. It's found in every place around the world. It's even found throughout the history of time, even going back to the very beginning of time with Adam and Eve. We see it in the very first sin when Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she ate from it, even though that was the one and only thing that God had forbidden them to eat. She was more concerned with herself. She was only concerned with what she wanted in that moment. She was not at all concerned with honoring God. She was, indeed, very selfish. And that sin of selfishness has been a problem in the world ever since. Every person that has been born since Adam and Eve sinned have inherited what we call a sinful nature, a sinful nature that is more concerned with self than it is with honoring God. Of course, we know that there's good news. We know that we come, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we know that we are freed from the power of sin, including freed from the power that selfishness has over us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that we are something new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are something new. We are not what we were before. I mean, if you look back at the early church in the book of Acts, and you see how the coming of the Holy Spirit and the faith in Jesus Christ transformed those people. You read of how the church, everyone in that church was completely selfless. They were giving to one another whoever had any need. And there was no one with a need because of it. And we see the great selflessness that came about because of faith in Jesus Christ. However, if we examine our own lives, like I said at the very beginning, we all too often still see that we are a very selfish people. And that's because we, while we've been freed from the power of sin, we have to remember that we have not been freed from the ability to sin. 
We must work hard. We must strive to put off selfishness. We must work hard to be a selfless people. Paul reminds us in Galatians 5.17 that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Our flesh, our, our earthly, humanly nature wants what we want in spite of what we know, and it fights against the things of the spirit. So even though you've been freed from the power of sin, you must still work hard to fight that natural, sinful desire to be selfish and fight to work hard to selflessly live for the glory of God and for the good of others. And how do we do that? We do that by changing our actions. What we do, instead of doing things that are selfish, we begin to do things that are selfless. But if we want to do something, we have to first change our thinking and change our minds, or as Paul puts it in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so this morning as we cover our text from 2 Corinthians, my desire and my hope and my prayer is that our hearts will be renewed this morning and our lives will be transformed by the Word of God. And so let me begin by reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 21. Paul says here, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the other churches? except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through, those, through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the very reason why we gather here this morning, and we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us and teach us and to illuminate 
our minds to, under, to an understanding of your word. And I pray that you would do that this morning, that by your Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to understand this text, what was going on in the church at Corinth, what, was, what it was that Paul was trying to convey to them and what it is that you are trying to convey to us today. Lord, may we understand your word. And Lord, as Lee said earlier, may we not just say, wow, that's, that's great. But Lord, may you, by your Holy Spirit, cause it to sink into our hearts, change our thinking, renew our minds, and change our lives. Lord, may we be able to see in this text not only what it says, but how it applies to us. And may we act upon that so that you may receive glory and honor and that we might serve one another. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, throughout chapter 11 and up to this point in chapter 12, Paul has been boasting. Now, I've heard people who, have, um, who, who don't particularly care for Paul because they think he's arrogant or uh, that he was uh, some haughty guy because of the way he writes at times. But certainly we can see and have seen throughout chapter 11 uh, that uh, Paul's boasting, while, while he did it, was merely foolishness. He admitted that. He, he was boasting about his heritage to counteract the boast of the false teachers. He boasted about the, the difficulties that he had faced as he did the work of the ministry. He even boasted about the great revelation that he received. But throughout that, and even in our text as we begin this morning... He reminds them that doing so is foolishness. Even before he got to that point, at the end of chapter 10, he said to them, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul knows that he should boast in the Lord and that you should only boast in the Lord, but he went ahead and was acting foolishly. It says in our text this morning, verse 11, I have been a fool. He's done with his boasting. He acknowledges it's been foolish. And we have to ask ourselves, why would he do it? Why would he not just simply boast in the Lord? Why would he act a fool and boast in himself? And he tells us in verse 11, he says that the Corinthians forced him to. It's your fault. It's not mine. He says, you should have commended me. The Corinthians should have been commending him, boasting about Paul, but instead, in the face of the lies and slander of the false teachers, they were silent and said nothing. They should have commended him. And to commend means to prove, to put on display. The Corinthians should have proven, they should have put Paul's credentials on display for the false teachers instead of listening to the slander and the lies. They should have defended Paul. They should have said, no, he's a true apostle. He's someone who can be trusted and should be respected. But they didn't. And so Paul tells them, you know, I've been a fool. I commended myself. I've been doing this boasting because you did not commend me. And he says, you had plenty of reasons to commend me. The Corinthians had witnessed firsthand. They had seen the evidence themselves that Paul was a true messenger from God, a true apostle of Jesus Christ, one who was sent to do the work. 
Paul reminds them that he's not at all inferior to these super apostles, these apostles who were boasting about their heritage and who they were. He says, I'm not at the least bit inferior to them, even though I am nothing. Paul's wanting the Corinthians to understand that even in the midst of his humility, in, his, in the midst of his weakness, he was not at all inferior. He didn't want them to mistake his weaknesses as inferiority. He may have been nothing, but he was a true apostle, and the Corinthians knew it. He reminds them that they had witnessed the signs of a true apostle. They were performed among them. They were evidence of his apostleship. And so they, they had seen these signs, but what is a sign other than simply something that points us in the right direction or tells us what something is? What are the signs of a true apostle that Paul is speaking of here? Well, if we look at the text, we might quickly look and say, well, he speaks of signs and wonders and mighty works. It must be the miracles that were performed, but I don't think that's really it. Paul doesn't go into detail, but he, he says that the signs were performed among them that were accompanied by the signs and wonders and mighty works, accompanied by miracles. It had to be something more than just that. And I would say that his preaching, his teaching of the gospel was the sign that he was the true apostle. And he did his teaching and his preaching, as he says here, first with utmost patience. I mean, consider the Corinthian church. They were a church that was full of sin. That was the whole point of his first letter, calling them to turn away and repent of their sin. So Paul, even in the midst of difficulty and hardship, even in the midst of the sin of the Corinthian church, continued to faithfully proclaim Christ. He did not get frustrated and give up. He did so with utmost patience, which was a sign that he was a true messenger of God. And of course, he did it not only this, they, he performed these signs among them, not only with patience, but also with miracles. Or as he puts it, the signs, wonders, and mighty works. Basically, three waves, ways of speaking of the same thing. Miracles are first a sign. They were a sign that said, he's speaking the truth. Signs are something that authenticated Paul's message. Miracles were also wonders. I mean, think about a wonders. It's something that makes you stand in awe and go, wow. They were meant to draw attention to what Paul was speaking. And finally, miracles are mighty works. Works that display God's divine power, which obviously creates the wonder and awe, which authenticates the message that Paul was bringing. The miracles proved that Paul had been sent by God to preach the gospel to him, that he was indeed a true apostle. And because of that, the Corinthians should have commended him. But that's not the only reason they should have commended him. They should have also commended him because of the selfless love that he poured out upon each and every one of them in that church. Paul asked them the rhetorical question, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? In spite of the sin that Paul dealt with in his first letter, Paul had treated them with great respect, with great love. He had treated them just like he had treated every other church. 
He served them by proclaiming the gospel to them and teaching them what it meant to live out the Christian life. In spite of, his sin, in spite of their sin, he did not treat them as inferior to the rest of the churches. Well, with one exception. He did not take a paycheck from them. Paul refused to be a financial burden to them, a theme that he has constantly gone back to throughout this letter. And of course, it appears that the Corinthians must have been somewhat offended by that because Paul says in our text, forgive me this wrong. Now, when I initially read that, I think maybe Paul's being sarcastic here. Oh, so sorry for not taking your money. What a terrible person I am. But I don't think in studying the text and studying the culture that that's necessarily what it is. In Paul's day, it was a social norm for the wealthy, the elite, to pay someone to be their moral teacher, to hire someone. And it's likely that that is the very reason that Paul refused to accept that which he was entitled to pay for being a minister of God. Paul didn't want to be indebted to the Corinthians. Instead, he wanted to be the one who supported them. Paul says in verse 14, For I seek not, as, not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul's concern was not making money for himself. He saw himself as a spiritual father to his spiritual children. And because of that, he didn't want to receive his living from them. No more than we would want our young children to go to work and have to support us while we stay at home. Paul continues in verse 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul was willing to spend all his time and energy. He says to be spent, which means to be brought to complete exhaustion. He was willing to give everything he had for them. And he was not just willing to do it. He didn't just do it because, hey, Jesus sent me to do this work, so I guess I have to go do it. He didn't do it begrudgingly or with an attitude of, of anger and frustration with them. No, he says he did it most gladly. He was happy to do it. It was a joy for him to do the work. It was not out of simple duty. He did it out of selfless love for the Corinthian church. And yet it appears that Paul did not receive that love in return. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And then it seems that the Corinthians... were offended that Paul didn't take their money and then accused him of being insincere. Here he is selflessly pouring out his love on these people and they accuse him of deceit. They accuse him and say, oh yeah, I know that you haven't taken our money because you don't want to be a burden to us. But we know what you're doing. You're crafty. You're being deceitful. You sent Titus and these others to take the money from us for these so-called poor believers in Jerusalem just so you can get a hold of that money yourself and put it in your pocket. What a sad situation. And Paul points out to them, he says, it's not true. Look at the men that I sent to you. 
Consider them. He says, are they any different than I was? Did they not have the same character, come in the same spirit? Did they not take the same steps in others? Did they not act the same as I have? Paul knew and was confident that the Corinthians, if they examined the men that they thought were coming to take this money to line Paul's pockets, if they thought about those men, they would recognize that they were sincere, godly men, just as Paul was. And Paul was confident in this because he knew how they had treated Titus when he was there. Back in 2 Corinthians 7.13, we're told that Titus had been refreshed by his visit there. Had the Corinthians saw him as, as insincere and saw him as ungodly, certainly they would not have treated him so well that he felt refreshed by being in their presence. The Corinthians had plenty of reasons to commend Paul. He had given them evidence that he was a true apostle. He had loved them selflessly. And yet, they had refused to commend him, so Paul had to act foolishly and commend himself. And now, at the beginning, I said the reason that Paul did this was because they didn't commend him, but that was just one reason. The real reason, the deeper reason why Paul boasted was something else. Paul didn't boast simply because he was concerned about his own reputation, like what are people going to think of me? He wasn't selfish about it. He was not simply worried about what others thought. He wasn't, it wasn't an issue of pride with Paul. In verse 19, he says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Even though boasting is obviously a very selfish act, with Paul, it was something completely opposite. Paul's boasting was actually completely selfless. He was concerned about them. Paul's boasting was for their upbuilding, for their edification, so that they would grow in spiritual maturity. Paul understood that if the false teachers were successful, the Corinthians would be torn down spiritually instead of built up. The Corinthians would be led back into sin, just as the lies of the serpent led Eve to commit that very first sin. The serpent had caused Eve to doubt God's goodness. And Eve took the bait. And Paul didn't want to see the Corinthians do the same thing. And Paul was going to Corinth for the third time, and he feared that he would find them not as he wished. He feared that he would find them in personal conflict, in quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, in disorder. He feared that, that they would not be as he desired, spiritually mature and growing, but instead involved in sin that destroys personal relationships and would destroy the unity of the body in that place. And if he found them not as he wished, they would in turn find him not as they wished. Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 4.21, he said, What do you wish? Shall I come with a rod? 
or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Do you want me to come with apostolic authority or do you want me to come in love and gentleness? Paul feared that he would have to come this time and exercise authority, exercise church discipline to come with this rod. And certainly that is not what the Corinthians wanted. No one wants to have someone come and punish them and rebuke them. Paul also feared that there would be a lack of repentance among the Corinthians who had been involved in serious and disgusting sin. He feared a lack of repentance in those whom he had called in his first letter to turn away from sin and turn back to Christ. Paul had admonished the Corinthians in his first letter for allowing sins of immorality, impurity, and sexual immorality to um, be tolerated openly in the church. If Paul was discredited by the false teachers, then it was likely that the Corinthians would not repent of those sins. They'd say, well, Paul wasn't real. He wasn't a real apostle. I don't have to listen to him. Paul's fear that he would go to Corinth and God would humble him. Paul had been boasting in the faith of the Corinthians, and yet he feared that he'd get there and find them in this horrendous sin, and that he would be humbled before God and would have to exercise church discipline. And though Paul did not desire to do that, if he came and found them in that manner, he would indeed exercise his authority. He says in the very next chapter, in just a couple of verses past our text, in 2 Corinthians 13, 2, that he would not spare anyone if he found them committing and condoning sin in the church. Paul becomes very bold and clear in what he would do if he found them that way. And yet, even in the midst of that boldness and that clarity of his willingness to exercise apostolic authority, Paul was not arrogant and he was not boastful. He would not apply God's truth to the Corinthians in an uncaring and unloving and an un, in a judgmental way. No, Paul would rather the Corinthians accept his admonition in this letter than go and, and find them involved in sin and have to exercise his authority. Paul would find no pleasure in it. He would be faithful to God's word, but he would do it, as he says here, with, with not only humility, but with mourning. Mourning, think about that word. I was at a memorial service for uh, uh, an, a woman that I knew from another church, and I'm good friends with her family. And there was mourning going on there because of the death of someone, and that is the way that Paul describes how he would feel if he found the Corinthian church in sin. These are his spiritual children, and it would be as if they had died. Paul would not be arrogant. It would cause him great sorrow. He was not in the ministry for himself, but he was in the ministry for them. He desired their salvation and their sanctification. He desired to find them growing in spiritual maturity. And finding them in open, unrepentant sin would be heartbreaking. And having pastored a church and dealt with people who were in open and unrepentant sin, I can tell you firsthand, it is a sad and a discouraging thing to deal with as a pastor. Paul is a great example of what the heart of a pastor should look like. As we begin to take this text this morning and apply it to our lives, I want to I first take a 
just point out and direct our thoughts to two very important marks of a godly pastor that I think that we see in this text. First, we find that selfless love. While pastors have the right to be paid for ministry, a godly pastor is not in it for the money. He's not concerned with becoming wealthy. His concern, his desire is for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of believers. He will gladly spend his time and energy even if his love is not reciprocated. And the second mark of a godly pastor that we see in this text is that a godly pastor faithfully and humbly exercises his biblical authority. A godly pastor does not ignore or tolerate sin, but calls people to repentance and exercises the biblical authority that he has to do so. And that's not easy. All too often, calls for repentance are met with defensiveness and hostility, sometimes even a church split. It breaks relationships at times with those people. I think the last time I preached, I told the story of a couple who ended up leaving the church. I called them not to leave and move away because they weren't ready, they weren't spiritually mature enough to walk away from the church body and they became angry and left. It's tough to deal with those situations and tell people the truth. As Lee pointed out, sometimes we just have to say, we're going to be open and honest, and we're going to speak the truth in love. And a godly pastor will do just that. He will speak the truth in love, and yet at the same time, he will exercise that godly authority, that biblical authority with great patience. He understands, a godly pastor understands that it is the Holy Spirit who convicts a person, not the pastor. We are merely vessels to deliver God's word and God's truth to those people. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin, and a godly pastor will give time for a person to repent and turn from that sin. And of course, as I've said, the godly pastor will exercise authority with great humility. He finds no joy in confronting someone in their sin or when bringing someone's sin before the church. Such sin in the body causes great pain and sadness. It is not an opportunity to gloat and say, see, I told you so. A godly pastor exercises biblical authority not only out of a love for God, but also out of a love for God's people. A godly pastor selflessly loves the church. And because of that, We as a church, we as the people of God, have a great responsibility in return. We have the responsibility, just like the Corinthians did, to defend our pastors. We do this by giving our pastors the benefit of the doubt and rejecting baseless lies that are told to us. We should not be quick to believe the accusations, but rather quick to believe our pastors' goodness and sincerity no matter how big or how small the statement seems to be. And if we're going to defend them, obviously we have to be able to rightly evaluate them because we all know that there are ungodly pastors out there in the world. We should evaluate them first by their character and their actions. Are they godly men who selflessly serve the church out of love and a desire to see people saved and sanctified? 
Are they faithfully and humbly teaching the word both publicly to the church body and privately one-on-one? And we evaluate our pastors based on the evidence of God's working. And that evidence is not found in what many churches uh, try to evaluate. It's not found in the number of people in attendance. It's not found in the amount of the monthly giving or how much the giving goes up over year over year or how the attendance has grown over year over year. It's not based on any human understanding, but rather based on what they are doing for God. If we want to know if God is working through our pastors and within the local church, we need to ask ourselves, are people being built up? Are they growing in spiritual maturity? Are they becoming more like Christ? And that has nothing to do with whether the people in the church are spiritually mature people and all doing the right things. It just merely means, are they more mature than they were last year? Are they growing in godliness? Is the church becoming a greater reflection of Christ than it was before? Do we see people being transformed through the ministry? The church at Corinth faced a great danger. If they continued to believe the lies of the false teachers instead of the godly instruction of Paul, there's no doubt that they would fall back into their sinful patterns. There would be disunity and discord in the church, and sin of all kinds would be all too common. And the church at Corinth would bring dishonor upon Christ, and the kingdom of God would not expand in that area. And the reality is we face the same dangers today. And so as we close this morning, I want us to consider for ourselves. I want each one of you to think about the text and ask yourself, how does this apply to me? Who am I in the text? Are you like the Corinthians? Are there people who are trying to discredit the work of this ministry, discredit the the pastors and elders, saying things about Steve or the, the elders or Adam or anyone else in leadership, even the community group leaders or whoever it might be, and say, you know, uh, man, if they just don't know what they're doing. They're doing that wrong. No matter what the accusation is, how big or how small, you need to evaluate what they're saying, evaluate the ministry, evaluate your pastors, and speak up and defend them. And not allow it to change your thinking and to become a divisive person within the body. You know, when that couple left the church in Dover, before they left, another couple got on board with them. And they began to, this other couple began to speak those lies to people in the church. And I had a lady come to me one day. She was, she was actually coming to tell me she was leaving the church. And she told me, so-and-so told me what was going on and what you had done. And I simply looked at her and I asked her, I said, does that sound like me? And she stopped and she thought, and she said, no. If you hear something about your pastors, stop and think, does that sound like them? And if it doesn't, reject it. Reject it. And if you still have concerns, go to that person and talk to them. Not accuse them, but ask them. Defend your pastors. Give them the benefit of the doubt. 
Ask yourselves, are you like the Corinthians who are selfishly, selfishly indulging in sin? And if that's you and you look at your life and you're involved in sexual immorality, if you're involved in quarreling or gossip or anger or deceit or any other sin, I would call you this morning to repent of that sin. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever here this morning, either way, you need to turn to Christ. He is the only one that forgives us of our sins and gives us the power to turn away. And may each one of us work to grow in spiritual maturity. Let us seek to be a blessing to our pastors that their work might be full of joy and not mourning. Let us seek to emulate Paul in the selfless life and, and, the, and live selfless lives in the service of others for the glory of God, remembering not only the example of Paul, but also the greatest example of selflessness that we have, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we be like Jesus and let go of the things that we deserve and instead seek to selflessly serve others for their good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray now that you would allow it to, to go deep into our hearts, that your spirit would awaken us to the truth and how it applies to our own hearts. Lord, if we should be humbled, if we should be, Lord, if we should be saddened by our own, by our own lives and our own hearts and what we're guilty of, Lord, I pray that you would just by your spirit convict us and change us. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this place. Lord, I thank you for this church and for the pastors, the elders, the leaders that we have. Lord, may we, may we be strengthened in our walk with you, that we might serve one another, that we might serve our community, and that we might go and take your gospel to the world. Lord, may you be glorified and honored in all that we do. We ask it all in Christ's precious and holy name.